This Saturday marks the third anniversary of the January 6th Capitol riots, and in some ways, America uh, is still on edge. Dr. Peter Simi is professor of sociology at Chapman University and joins us now for a conversation about the enduring threats to American democracy. Dr. Simi, good to have you on this program, sir. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you on the program. Glad we have an hour. There's a whole lot to unpack uh, on the eve of this third anniversary. Let me start with this. This is abundantly clear to anybody who's paid attention over the last three years that we saw in real time one attack, but there are two interpretations of that attack. Uh, Mm -hmm. Biden, of course, is out right now and out over the weekend uh, uh, sharing his view. Uh, They're both, uh, you know, using this to make their political messages to hone in, I should say, on their messages on the campaign trail. So Biden is using uh, January 6th as a political rallying cry in the way that he is. Donald Trump using January 6th as a political rallying cry in the way that he is. Again, one attack, two interpretations. What do you make of that reality three years later? Well, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, a part it, it reflects how collective memory uh, often can be distorted mm-hmm. and reframed, and that there are these uh, potential multiple interpretations for the same event. One of the things we're seeing a uh, recent poll by Washington Post and University of Maryland uh, shows declining numbers of Republicans who see January 6th attack on, on the Capitol as involving uh, substantial amounts of violence. Uh, we see declining numbers of Republicans seeing Trump as playing a role in terms of inciting the violence. So this is part of this reframing process that has been happening in part because of uh, Trump promoting um, this this uh, kind of counter-narrative, but also because of what we see in terms of various types of media outlets, whether it's, you know, Internet-based um, newspapers that, um, you know, basically traffic in disinformation, the various social media platforms from mainstream to fringe ones that, that traffic in disinformation. So we have this machinery that's developed over the last couple decades that has the capacity to reframe historical events in a way that we've really never quite, I don't think, dealt with in terms of the technology that, mm-hmm. that um, is, is underpinning you know, all of this kind of reframing. Yep. I want to talk in a moment here about that machinery uh, that you reference now uh, that is responsible at the, at the epicenter of all of this reframing. As you were talking, though, um, and I, think, I think we can connect these two things when we come forward here. Um, but as you were talking, I was thinking about George W. Bush. I was just reading a poll not long ago um, about George W. Bush, and this is this is this is real. This is real, folks. His his, his approval ratings, his popularity ratings, are now in the 60s. I mean, inching toward the high 60s, closer to 70. George W. Bush. Now, if you recall George W. Bush's numbers when he left the White House after that whole debacle. We went into uh, Iraq looking for those weapons of mass destruction. That ended up being, as you all recall, a weapon of mass distraction. We never found what they said we were going to find. They said we'd be greeted and cheered when we arrived in the streets. That didn't happen. It became an occupation. We all remember how George W. Bush left black people to die on rooftops in Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. You recall that? Left black folk to die. He did a quick flyover. Condi Rice at the time was at Saks Fifth Avenue shopping for shoes in New York City, the highest ranking black in his administration, going to a Broadway play that night. This is George W. Bush. Y'all recall this. 
He leads the White House with the lowest poll numbers of any president in modern history. His poll numbers are now in the 60s. And some believe he still hasn't been called to account for being a war criminal. My point is the point Dr. Simi just, Simi just made about collective memory. How is it that a few years pass by and we rethink everything? We rethink everything. A lot to talk about. Dr. Peter Simi is our guest. You're listening to Tavis Smile. Hope, agency, dignity. This is Tavis Smiley. Can you dig it? Come on! More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned in to Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley and Dr. Peter Simi, um, who is professor of sociology at Chapman University, talking about the third anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. Yesterday, we were honored on this program to have a uh, brilliant conversation with Benny Thompson, the congressman out of Mississippi, who, as you know, was the chair uh, of the January 6th Select Committee uh, that uh, made Jack Smith's case possible against Donald Trump. So we uh, had a, a great conversation with Benny Thompson. If you missed it, go to our uh, social media platforms and uh, tabismileyshow.com and check out the podcast of our excellent dialogue yesterday with uh, Chairman Thompson. That said, I was mentioning George Bush a moment ago, George W. Bush, because uh, Dr. Simi made a powerful point about the ways in which technology these days and the way it is used uh, aids and abets in a machinery create has created in fact a machinery that allows us to to just sort of <laughs> have a collective memory that gets warped in a variety of ways I was making the point that when George W. Bush left office his poll numbers were the worst literally of any president in modern history now a few years later his poll numbers sit in the 60s high 60s uh, and, and that is in part, I think, because of the advent of Donald Trump. I mean, compared to Donald Trump, George Bush looks like looks like it looks like child's play uh, in, in, in some respect. And let's just be let's just call let's just call it what it is. Michelle Obama, wittingly or unwittingly, and I think perhaps unwittingly, has been involved in the rethinking of George W. Bush at all these state events when she sits next to him and they're passing each other peppermints, which they've joked about. Uh, I'm not speaking out of color here, out of term. And she has said publicly many times, I just love him. I just love him. That, in part, as popular as she is, that helps to reframe the way we think about and see George W. Bush. So wittingly or unwittingly, the former First Lady Michelle Obama has been involved in the way we have rethought the Bush years and the Bush administration. But this is the same Bush, I repeat, that left black folk to die on rooftops in Katrina, the same one that got us in this mess in Iraq, and we rethought George Bush. I say all that to, to ask Dr. Semi how it is that you see this machinery working in real time on Donald Trump. That was George Bush. Now we're in real time talking about Donald Trump and you're making the same point that this machinery is allowing a reframing of what January 6th was and what it wasn't. The poll numbers you referenced earlier, the declining numbers of people who, who remember or recall that violence was used. Poll numbers indicating uh, that Trump wasn't really involved in making this happen. So this stuff is really scary. But to your point, it's, it's leading to a reframing of what literally and actually happened three years ago. Why is that important? Because we don't want history 25 years from now to act like this is a Boston Tea Party. That's not what this was. Right. So so so, so tell me how you how you see this machine working in these interesting and unique ways. Well, yeah, it's it is a very scary time. I just underscore that um, we, we're we're teetering, quite frankly. Mm. And one one of the things that worries me most 
are the ways in which, look, there's a segment of the population that is tuned in and understands Trump for what he is, which is, you know, basically someone who wants to become uh, the next uh, global authoritarian dictator. He's made that very clear himself. And, And who, frankly, has just, you know, recently been tripling down on calling for race war with the comments about poisoning the blood of the country in terms of immigrants from, you know, very specifically, he outlines uh, so-called non-white uh, continents, mm-hmm. uh, Asia, Africa, uh, and, and uh, Central and South America. So, look, this is who he is, and there is a segment of the population that understand that. But there's also a, you know, a segment, large segment, who either really just endorses that uh, which is scary enough, or just isn't fully attuned and isn't really paying attention. And, and these are folks who can be, you know, influenced by um, the ways in which the machinery can reframe things. And one of the aspects of the reframing that I think is most troubling is the way in which, you know, mainstream media will treat Donald Trump like a conventional politician, no matter what he says, mm-hmm. no matter how clear it, he makes it that he is uh, an authoritarian and uh, wannabe dictator, no matter. No matter how much he says the Constitution doesn't apply to him, the rules in general, the law doesn't apply to him, there's still a tendency uh, among some segments of the mainstream media to treat him like a, a conventional politician. And that really helps aid and abet this kind of reframing and give uh, a kind of a permissibility to, to what he's doing. Mm-hmm. What are, to your mind, and I'm not naive in asking this question, and it might sound uh, simplistic on its surface, but I think there's something there to interrogate, so let's go here. Um, what, to your mind, are the dangers, uh, the dangers of this reframing about January 6th that we are literally witnessing and watching in real time? We lose our democracy, mm. quite, quite simply. Mm-hmm. Um, if Trump were to be elected in 2024, I, I do uh, firmly believe that that uh, would be, um, that, that we would lose our democracy. Uh, I think he's, again, made it abundantly clear what he intends to do, what his surrogates intend to do, the game plan, uh, the learning curve that took place from 2016 to, to another administration. Um, so I, I think, you know, that, that in, in the, in, at the end of the day, that, that is the gravest danger is that we, we completely lose our democracy. But there's also more immediate threats that are represented by what he's doing, which is the... Um, the way in which this is uh, essentially promoting uh, additional uh, political violence, whether it's single actors who act on behalf of this larger cause in terms of this ideology of white supremacy that he's promoting, um, or it's um, you know small cells, uh, small groups uh, that act uh, in this manner, or a large mass mobilization, whether it's at the nation's capital or at state capitals. I mean, these are all on the table for for threats that, you know, we've experienced in the past and, and will likely continue to face heightened threats uh, in this respect, especially as we get closer to 2024 in terms of the election. Mm-hmm. I want to ask one more question, at least one more. There may be others about this collective memory because I'm still wrestling with this notion of how we sort of get sucked in or, to quote Spike Lee, hoodwink, bamboozled, run amok, led astray. That's really Malcolm X, of course. Um, but we get we get sucked in. We get bamboozled again, hoodwinked, run amok and led astray when it comes to our collective memory about what really happened. Benny Thompson, the chairman, made the point yesterday. Um, we're at a point now where people are basically saying to you, are you going to believe what you saw? Are you going to believe your lying eyes? I mean, did you really see this or your eyes just lying to you? Were you deceived? And, and, and we, 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 we know what we saw that day. And yet 
again, as time goes on, the polls indicate that people are that, that our memories are slipping, as it were, with regard to the truth of what happened on that particular day. And we're just three years out. I, I raised the point earlier when you get, you know, not three years out, but six years out, nine years out, you know, 25, 30 years out. There may be a whole different story. And we know because we, we in real time, we see all the ways in which we need to be. Uh, be diligent about correcting history. Um, as time goes on, we learn that things we were taught and told just weren't true. Columbus did not discover America. He bumped into, he bumped into some Native Americans once he once he got here. He bumped into some folk who were already here. But how many years were we taught that particular story? My my point is that when this stuff goes on unabated year after year after year, it just sinks in into the collective conscience of the country, and we end up believing a narrative that just isn't true. My question is, how does this machinery suck us all? Well, there's there's lots of different ways. I mean, one, and there's some some inclination, you know, when it comes to January 6th, given that this is an attack on the Capitol committed by a large number of people who don't represent, you know, the typical kind of outsider threat that's easier to identify. So it's it's an insider threat, and people, you know, generally have a harder time identifying their next door neighbor even a, a potential family member, as someone who is engaged in extremist action, who's uh, you know, involved in an attack on, on the nation's capital. That's, that's hard to reconcile to just to begin with. And then you take that difficulty, really, coming to terms with that in, in the best of circumstances, but you take that and then put it within a context where there is all of this disinformation that's flowing freely, selective, a use of, of video footage, for instance, to show, to try and represent what happened on January 6th as, as largely nonviolent. And, and that's certainly, you can take actual footage and show people just standing around and, and talking to uh, some of the Capitol Police officers in a, in a non-confrontational way. You can take those clips and, and you can, you know, splice it and, and, and emphasize those. And, of course, obviously, there's plenty of clips that show the, the actual violence that took place. But, but there's ways to, to kind of emphasize certain aspects and, um, and try and overwhelm people with, with this kind of disinformation, which is, I think, what's happening to a large extent in a lot of different arenas in our, in our lives with social media. The amount of time people are spending on, on these platforms, they're consumed in many respects by the platforms. And, and the platforms churn out this this kind of information that can kind of overwhelm people's senses in, in many respects. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I thought to ask you about the role that civility, or put another way, incivility plays in this process. But it, it occurs to me as I as I'm as I'm prepping to, to ask you that question that we're, we're beyond a conversation about civility. I mean, years ago we have this conversation about how uncivil our politics have have become. Uh, and if ever there were a conversation to be had about incivility, uh, it would be on the occasion of January 6th, um, three years ago. And yet, to my point, it seems we're not even in that frame. The frame is no longer a conversation about civility. To your point about what Donald Trump has been saying of late, we're talking about calling for anarchy. That's not just uncivil. Uh, that's <laughs> anarchy is something totally different. So I, I guess I'm not even sure what my question is. I, I guess the question is, um, how do you see the rhetoric uh, around January 6th changing the way we will recall what happened on January 6th? 
Well, the, yeah, the rhetoric's always important in terms of how you know history is 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 um, understood and, and framed or reframed, and um, certainly uh, lots of lots of efforts to to use certain kinds of language. For instance, referring to the the insurrectionists rather than as insurrectionists as as patriots. Mm-hmm. So it's a, that's and some of that's just kind of the basic way in which using you know positive terms to try and spin things in a certain way. Uh, certainly, we see that with a lot of a lot of Trump's narrative uh, approach to to uh, understanding what happened in January sixth from his from his perspective, and he did that right right away. Right, he did that literally on January sixth when mm-hmm. when he spoke about what was happening that day, and soon thereafter, um, you know, really celebrating what was done, talking about you know these people essentially as as folks to be celebrated as heroes, as patriots, and so forth. So that that really started. Uh, on January 6th of, of 2021. Mm. I, I wonder what you make of the timing of this. I mean, obviously the calendar is the calendar. Um, but we, again, we're talking to one of our guests yesterday, Jonathan Martin, a senior writer for Politico. And Jonathan just brought home the point that many that we all know, but hadn't, we haven't really processed it in this way. But he and I had a deep, uh, a deep drill down on the fact that while Donald Trump at the moment is the presumptive Republican nominee, presumptive that is, uh, it is very likely that he will be the actual nominee come later this summer, or for that matter, once we get through a few primaries. It we'll, won't even take the summer to know he's going to be the nominee. We'll know that by March, probably, uh, if not before. So in a, in a couple of months, we'll know that Donald Trump is not just the presumptive nominee, but the actual, in fact, nominee of the Republican Party. If that happens, he will have been the nominee for three consecutive presidential election cycles. It's almost unheard of in this country that one guy would be the nominee of his party for three consecutive election cycles. That's a big deal. But what makes this this particular moment uniquely different is that we're commemorating. Um, others are celebrating. I saw another conversation for another time. <laughs> uh, those who are celebrating it. But here we are on the third anniversary uh, of January the 6th. And at this particular moment, all of this other Trump drama is swirling around us. The Supreme Court is going to have to get involved to decide whether he's on these ballots or off these ballots. Um, All these cases are being delayed and pushed further and further down the docket. So it's highly unlikely at this point, I shouldn't say highly, but somewhat unlikely that there'll be a verdict in any of these cases that will keep him off the ballot or keep him from being eligible to run for president. My point is that in this particular moment, looking back at January the 6th and the way that Biden will try to use it as a political rallying cry, the way that Trump will try to use it as a a political rallying cry. These two guys are going to go again head to head, uh, round two. The timing of this uh, third anniversary of of, of January 6th is interesting to me. That's my take on it. How do you read the timing of this? Well, uh, I think the timing, unfortunately, is working... uh, you know, we talked about the machinery of, of social media. We, we also have, you know, a different kind of machinery in terms of, you know, bureaucratic systems as far as the legal system and, and the, the political system. And um, at, at the moment, I think some of these timing issues that you just outlined are unfortunately working uh, in Donald Trump's favor. I thought I thought, of, I thought you might say that. That's why I asked. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought you might say that. Yeah, no, that, yeah, so that's, that's uh, you know, again, we'll, we'll see what happens with, with the Colorado case, um, we'll, we'll see what happens with Maine and, and whether other other states also, um, you know, kind of continue to move in that direction. Um, I'm holding out some hope because these are states that are, you know, essentially following the law. You know, we 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 
we think we have very good evidence showing Trump's involvement in terms of inciting the violence that happened on on January 6th and and um you know, really uh, promoting and, and influencing what, yeah. what we saw in terms of the I, attack on the Capitol. So I'm, I'm trying to be hopeful there, but unfortunately I do think th- this other type of machinery is, is working in his yeah. favor at the moment. I want to ask you the same question I asked Benny Thompson, the chairman, yesterday when we come forward. Um, I posed it to him uh, yesterday. I want to pose it to you today. And the question is simply this. I'll let you think about it, and we'll continue when we come forward. I think, as I said to Benny Thompson yesterday, that states are making a huge mistake to keep Donald Trump off the ballot. I think strategically, or to quote George Bush, the strategery, <laughs> the strategery of keeping uh, Donald Trump off the ballots is going to come back to bite Democrats in the behind. Now, it may not be an issue at all because the Supreme Court comes through and rules in his favor, which they likely will. Then it won't be. It's a non sequitur anyway. It's a non-issue, right? A non-starter if they rule in his favor to be on all these ballots, period. Uh, but I think it's a huge mistake for these states to try to keep him off the ballot. You call it following the law. I call it, you know dumb political decisions. We'll unpack that and get I'll give you my thesis and hear your response when we come forward. I guess it's Peter Simi. You're listening to him right now on Tavis Smiley. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Helping to make you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley. This is Tavis Smiley, Dr. Peter Simi, who is a professor of sociology at Chapman University. We continue now our conversation about the anniversary of January 6th, the third anniversary of January 6th, this Saturday. Uh, no more propitious time for a conversation about what did happen and what didn't happen, uh, who was there and who wasn't there um, three years later, because as Dr. Simi made the point brilliantly uh, earlier in this dialogue, our collective memory is starting to fade. And there's a machinery at work 24-7 to reframe what actually happened on January the 6th, President Biden is out across the country stumping, using January 6th as a political rallying cry. Donald Trump crisscrossing the country using January 6th as a political rallying cry. One attack, but two interpretations three years later. Uh, and we just want to make sure that in the months and years to come, we don't lose sight of what, what really happened on that particular day. And three years out, it's starting to get a little blurry uh, for some Americans, and the polls are indicating that, uh, as Dr. Simi again said earlier, just catching you up in case you've just tuned in, all kind of polls out now suggesting that people don't recall violence being the order of the day three years ago on January 6th. They don't recall that Donald Trump was really involved in what happened three years ago this Saturday. And so, uh, again, no, no time like the present uh, to, to get your mind right and to recall what really happened on January 6th three years ago. And history has a way of uh, uh, of slipping. Uh, somebody said, don't let me slip because if I slip, I'm slipping, and then you know I'm straight tripping. Who was that? I think that was you know, Snoop or somebody. Uh, but you take my point. Um, uh, Dr. Dr. Simi, uh, the, the question that I posed to Benny Thompson yesterday, the chairman of the January 6th Select Committee, that I want to pose to you now, uh, and that is whether or not you think these states, following the law or not, are making a mistake um, to keep Donald Trump off the ballot. Once again, the Supreme Court will ultimately get involved in this and, and have their say. You saw Donald Trump ask the Supreme Court yesterday to rule specifically on the main uh, uh, order that will keep him off the ballot there, at least temporarily. They, he's asked the court to rule on that. So they're, so they're, so they're going to get involved and make a ruling, I think, that will cover all these states, whether he is or is not uh, eligible to be on these ballots. But I think it's a mistake in part because the more... The folk who follow him, we'll just call them sycophants, the more the folk who follow him believe that the state 
that the entire system is out to get him. That, of course, plays into his narrative, which you referenced earlier, and that can't be good for democracy long term. Well, I, I think this will be one of those, uh, an opportunity for us to practice uh, some of that civility we were discussing earlier and have to mm-hmm. agree to disagree. Yep. Um, I, I was, uh, you know, I testified in the Colorado case on behalf of the plaintiffs as an expert witness about Trump's relationship with far-right extremists. In the way, for, for many years, he's used various communication strategies to promote and endorse political violence. And and then specifically how that came to play on on January sixth, mm-hmm. um, I, I think you know there's the legal question, there's the political question. Sure, sure. Um, I, I, I don't think it's a mistake to to follow the law, and the political arguments against, for instance, what you just referenced, the 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 idea that it's better to beat him fair and square at the ballot box mm-hmm. to validate the results in that kind of way that's that reinforces democracy in a more healthy way than than what 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 potentially could happen in terms of him being declared ineligible and that that will then for among his supporters just be viewed as another piece of evidence about how rigged the system is the problem with that, as I see it, from a political standpoint and, and also as a factual standpoint, is his supporters already think the system's rigged, and there's already a narrative in place that if the results are such that they're unfavorable to, to Trump in 2024, it's going to be declared a, a rigged election, uh, just like 2020 was. And the idea of beating him fair and square at the ballot box doesn't mean much to his supporters because of these uh, narratives that that already exist and the way in which he's been able to effectively frame things. Sure. So I, I don't really see that uh, you know from a political standpoint as as being all that helpful to say well you know this is and and again because it is I think consistent with the law so I, I do think it's actually consistent with. Mm-hmm. you know, democracy, and is a healthy exercise of democracy in terms of following the Constitution and preventing somebody who now has been declared to have been essentially guilty of inciting violence, you know, on the attack on the, during the attack on the Capitol, to allow that person to move forward with the presidential campaign, in, in my view, is so inconsistent with, with the law that... Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see how that that actually is very healthy for democracy. Okay, so so to your point, I love this. This this is getting good, as we say around here. To your point, uh, I, let's, we we're gonna practice civility here, but I'm gonna put I'm I'm gonna push back on you just for the sake of argument. Okay. Uh, obviously, we feel the same about Donald Trump. There's no there's no there's no uh, uh, there's no space between us on how we view Donald Trump, but I do think right. there's some space between us, perhaps on. Uh, practicing the democratic ideals that make this experiment in democracy worth advancing, if I can put it that way. So, so, so here's, here's my retort to what you just said. And I have great respect for the fact that you testified in the Colorado case, and that's why I'm honored to bring this uh, to this microphone all kinds of great guests for this audience. Here's a guy who was an involved, a professor who testified uh, in the Colorado case. Um, and they found Donald Trump, of course, ineligible to be on their ballot. We'll see what happens in the days to come. But one of the democratic ideals that we have to that we have to assert and advance are the right to due process, fundamental fairness, and presumption of innocence. Due process, fundamental fairness, and presumption of innocence. Even for Donald Trump, um, he has not been found guilty of those things you allege that he has done. Now, we all believe he did it, but he's not been found guilty of those things. And so I'm not so sure 
that these states have the right to declare him ineligible for a ballot based on evidence that you and others testified about for which at the moment he has not been found guilty. And so I believe in the rule of law, trust and believe, and I believe, if you're asking me, that Donald Trump in many ways has broken the rule of law. But part of the rule of law for me is not disconnected from fundamental fairness, due process, and presumption of innocence. And I think jumping out front to deny him ballot access is not just, again, political suicide. We can disagree on this civilly. Um, I think it's political suicide, but I think it is not good for our democracy long term. Let me put it another way. If Barack Obama, the first African-American president of these United States, had been denied ballot access for something that he was alleged to have done and black folk had not been given the chance to vote for Barack Obama, I'd be the first person and everybody be lined up behind me saying, don't you dare keep that brother off the ballot over an allegation. If he's found guilty, all right. He denied he's denied ballot access. So my point is, you know, quoting again, Benny Thompson yesterday, if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. We may not like Donald Trump, but I think foreclosing on his ballot access before he's found guilty of anything is a real problem for our democracy. That's my take. Uh, Professor Simi will respond to that when we come forward. You're listening and I'm glad about it to Tavis Smiley. Interrogating and unpacking. That's what we do around here. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. May Fresh Daily in the Mert Park, Los Angeles, California. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley and Peter Simi, who now gets to respond to what I had to say moments ago. Dr. Simi, the mic is yours, sir. Okay, thank you, Tavis. Uh, let me just preface my comments by uh, indicating that I am not an attorney and I don't play <laughs> one on TV. But <laughs> And neither am I, sir. Neither uh, am I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In Colorado, there was a, a trial, a civil one, not criminal, but civil one, where a judge did determine that the evidence, there was enough evidence that, you know, Donald Trump, you know, did incite the violence on January 6th. He did play a role in the attack on the Capitol. Um, you have a state Supreme Court, uh, while it was a, you know, four, four to three decision, you know, in terms of affirming, um, you know, the, the district uh, court judge's decision, None of the seven uh, state Supreme Court justices dissented in terms of the evidence showing his involvement in terms of inciting violence in, on, in the attack on the Capitol. So there has been, you know, court proceedings. You know, the, Donald Trump's team of attorneys had an opportunity to cross-examine uh, witnesses that um, testified during the trial. They had an opportunity to present evidence in in in, in contrast. Um, so it's not that as if Colorado just made a determination without any kind of due process. There there was uh, due process in terms of you know coming to the determination that you know he did play a role in the attack on the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay, I, I hear that argument in the state of Colorado. Um, I, I guess the question is whether or not you think that we are, again, um, dealing with a hot mess, given that, that we got 50 states and 50 states can make 50 different decisions, and that ain't how this democracy, this democracy is supposed to work when it comes to federal elections. Well... Uh, hot mess is fair. Uh, we're we're dealing with a hot mess uh, in in a lot of respects. Um, you know this this is one one facet uh, of a you know a, a much broader hot mess. I, mm-hmm. I would say. Sure. Uh, does this make the hot mess worse? Um, 
I, I don't see it that way. Uh, I see I see this as trying to, again, we, we talked earlier about the importance of you know, being, preventing distortions of collective memory and, mm-hmm. and legal proceedings, I think, are an important mm-hmm. aspect of how we try and rectify distortions in terms of the, the historical record. And so if nothing else, um, the, the Colorado case and, and others to follow potentially are an effort to help set the record straight and, and, and put in, you know, uh, very firm, detailed, documented evidence this is exactly what happened on January 6th. Distortions, um, you know, aside, social media platforms and their trafficking of disinformation aside, we've got a, a legal record in place here that shows really what happened on, on January 6th, and in part because of the efforts of um, the the select committee and, yeah. and uh, Congressperson Thompson and others' efforts. You know, we do have these historical uh, records in place to hopefully try and counter some mm-hmm. of the disinformation that's, yeah. that's obviously spreading widely. And I think that legal record is awfully important. When we come forward in our remaining moments, uh, Dr. Simi, I, I, I want uh, to ask you this. Um, if this machinery continues to do its work, um, if our collective memory continues to fade, uh, if we continue to see a reframing of what happened, what really happened on January 6th, three years ago, um, how do we stop it from happening again? I mean, if our if our collective memory is distorted, if there is a a a, a rethinking and a rewriting of the historical record, the legal record notwithstanding, how do we ensure that what happened on January sixth doesn't happen again? Or how do we ensure that it's not worse the next time around if we end up believing that what happened was just a little a little kitty party? Nothing nothing really significant happened that day, January sixth. Um, how do you stop it from happening uh, a second time and being again even worse the next time around? That's our exit question for Dr. Peter Simi when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. For all the freedom loving folk, this is Tavis Smiley. I feel like more of this rich dialogue with Tavis Smiley. Dr. Simi, uh, I posed the extra question already. Um, if um, if nobody remembers what really happened, how do you stop it from happening again? Look, uh, we we didn't get to this abyss that we're in overnight. It uh, took it, it was it's been a long time coming. First step, though, we have to recognize that we not fall prey to false optimism. The, mm-hmm. the glass is not anywhere close to being half full right now. Okay, so we, we have to understand the depth of the problem. Two, we have to recognize that this serious and grave of a problem needs a multifaceted approach. We need some kind of a uh, reimagine a new deal of sorts to counter uh, the, the kinds of things that uh, your station, frankly, uh, you know, stands for in terms of progressive action across a broad range of activities, progressive economics, progressive, um, you know, uh, countering uh, uh, this kind of hyper-globalization that uh, results in massive job loss. You know, these are, we have to think very broadly and big in terms of the scope of the problem and what needs to be done to counter it. But the most immediate thing I would say is we have to understand that voting, voting, voting in 2024 is absolutely necessary. And preventing the election of Donald Trump is a absolute must. Mm. And his uh, an election of Trump puts everything else somewhat uh, 
kind of a makes everything else a moot point to, to many in, in many respects. It, it is an existential threat that we're facing in terms of his candidacy. You know, I take your point about the ex- existential threat, if I can say it, existential threat that we're facing. I take your point about that. I guess uh, my, my last question, I, I lied. That was not my exit question. Here's my exit question. I'm just going to do a gut check because you, again, were at the table. You testified in the Colorado hearing. Um, what's your gut telling you uh, about whether or not democracy can hold Put another way, whether or not fascism uh, and that ex- existential threat of Donald Trump being elected uh, can um, can be can can uh, can be denied. Well, it absolutely can be denied. Again, we we have um, you know we we do have the opportunity to vote uh, in 2024, and uh, we should take advantage of that. And uh, I I am very concerned. That people are becoming, you know, obviously increasingly disenchanted with two-party system for good reason. Mm-hmm. There's lots of other issues globally that have people's attention, focus, very good reason. The bombings in Gaza, obviously, being at or near the top of the list, very good reason for that focus on that. Explosion of anti-Semitism, good reason to focus on on lots of different issues. But we must come back to in, in the United States this this presidential election and recognize the threat that we're up against. Dr. Peter Simi has stated that threat, I think, quite nicely in this conversation. Uh, couldn't do better than our conversation with him uh, on the eve of January 6th this weekend. He is professor of sociology at Chapman University, and I've honored and uh, been honored to have had him on this program. Dr. Simi, thank you for your work and witness, and thank you, sir, for this conversation. All the best to you. Thanks for having me.